0: Father, that truly is our prayer. We want to see you glorified today. We want to see you glorified in our individual lives, in our corporate life, and in everything that we say and do. Glorify yourself today by making us more like Jesus. Use your word to make us what we are not, and use your spirit to take what we are, and to make us more into what we ought to be. Speak to us now through your holy word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we all be changed by the end of our time together this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, it is uh, great to see you this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, while you're doing that, I I will say that I count it a true privilege to be able to open up God's Word together with you. Uh, Over the last four years or so, we've been taking uh, a verse-by-verse approach through the book of Matthew, and we're putting that study on pause for a few weeks. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, And after that, uh, Pastor Paul Twist is going to be taking us through uh, Habakkuk. Over the past couple of years, when the opportunity has arisen, I've been able to uh, open up Ephesians with you, and we have beheld wondrous things uh, from this life-giving, this life-transforming letter. Uh, It's my prayer this morning that we'll behold more wondrous things. This is such an important letter for us because it is... Paul writing to the church, uh, instructing the church how to live as the church. Uh, the Ephesian believers found themselves living in a culture that wasn't just different from Christianity, uh, but it was growingly hostile to Christianity. And I think more and more we find ourselves in a very similar situation to the church in Ephesus. How can we live in a society that is dominated by sexual immorality, that's distorted by lies, that's defined by anger and hatred, devastated by corruption of speech? How can we remain faithful to Christ when perversion and persecution surround us? How can we be effective witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ when everyone seems to be denying objective truth and instead embracing personal truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. I'm convinced that the answers to these questions and many more are in this letter, uh, and they're even in the passage that we've set before us this morning. So may God give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May He give us minds to receive and, and hearts and wills that are set on obeying His Word. This morning, our focus is on Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, but I want to start by reading back from verse 17 so we can see this passage in its context. Follow along with me as I read aloud. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put off, put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the Word of God, and God blessed the reading of His Word. In the 11th chapter of His gospel account, the apostle John described the events surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, He started by saying that there was a certain man named Lazarus who was ill. Uh, John went on to provide a little bit more detail uh, in saying that Lazarus was the brother of Mary and of Martha, and that they were all from the village of Bethany. Mary and Martha, uh, concerned about their brother's illness, sent word to Jesus saying, "'Lord, he whom you love is ill.'" Oddly enough, upon hearing of the illness of the man whom he loved, Jesus decided to stay a couple of extra days where he was. Listen to John 11, 5, 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's a strange reaction to hearing of someone's illness to hang out where he was. And most of you are familiar with what happened next. Lazarus died by the time before Jesus was able to get there to him, and he was buried. Uh, Martha wept, Mary wept, Jesus wept. If you haven't already done so, uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, let's start at verse 38 there. This is after Lazarus had been buried. John chapter 11, verse 38 I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Turn turned over just to uh, chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. This taking off of the grave clothes and, and putting on the party clothes. Uh, this is the imagery that Paul was using back in Ephesians chapter four. Lazarus would not have been caught dead at the party wearing what he was wearing when he was in the grave, right? He had to take off the grave clothes, and he, no doubt, was wearing something completely different. Uh, he was once dead and was brought back to life, and he put off those death clothes and he put on new clothes that reflected this new condition of life. So when Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers in in Ephesians 4.22, and is talking about putting off that old self, uh, which belongs to the former manner of life, which really was death, uh, and putting on the new self created after the likeness of God, Paul is giving a, a word picture that really conjures up images of the resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus put off those grave clothes and put on wedding garments, really, is what he put on. And as we get ready to take a closer look at our passage for this morning, it's important for us to to have that imagery in our mind of the old self being put off and the new self being put on. Colossians 3, 9 to 10 is, is also really helpful. We read that earlier in the Scripture reading. Colossians Uh, Chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the reality of those who have been transformed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've turned from sin and turned to Christ, to, to be the righteousness that you need in order to stand before God on that final day, if you've done that, then you have already put off that old self and you have put on the new self, which is Christ. This is how Paul could say that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. The followers of Jesus have already put off the old self, and and we've already put on the new self. And since that is true, uh, then the word therefore in verse 25 makes complete sense. Uh, since you have been saved by hearing and learning Christ, since you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds, uh, since you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, therefore, make sure that your conduct matches this new clothing that you're wearing. You're no longer wearing grave clothes. Uh, You're wearing wedding garments. So act like it. That's Paul's point. As we focus on Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 now, we'll see that the outline of this passage is is a little bit unorthodox. Uh, Normally, I'd try to come up with maybe a three-point outline I try to be cute and maybe alliterate it uh, in hopes that you would remember the points, perhaps. Uh, But that's not the structure of this text at all. Uh, In fact, as you read through the text, it almost kind of seems like it's just a big list of things that we're supposed to do or or not supposed to do. But this list actually has structure. Paul gives his believing readers five activities or or manners of conduct uh, that must be indicative of their belief in Jesus Christ. With each of those activities, he provides an old and then he provides a new and he provides a why. We're, we're putting off this old way. We're putting on this new way. And here's the reason why we're doing that. The first activity that Paul mentions is lying. Look at, down at verse 25 with me, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Here we see that the the old activity is is practicing falsehood or lying. Uh, It's no wonder that Paul started here uh, with lying because that's really how sin entered into the world. That's how all of our sin problems began was with lying. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceived Eve with a lie. Telling her, you will not surely die if you eat of that fruit. Did God really say the temptation was given to her in a lie? For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin and death entered into the world through a lie. And Jesus said of the devil that he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And when we lie, we are acting like the devil. On the contrary, God is true, and he is the truth. And Jesus said of himself in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. during that same conversation, Jesus told His disciples that that He wouldn't leave them as orphans, but instead that He would leave another helper with Him, the helper He referred to as the spirit of what? The spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. Whereas the devil is called a liar and the father of lies, the, the writer of Hebrews says that it is impossible for God to lie. Scripture teaches us that not only is it impossible for God to lie but God hates lying. In Ephesians 4:25 Paul's actually quoting from Zechariah chapter 8 uh, verse 16. It's worth taking a look at this passage. You can turn there if you like or just uh, listen closely as I read aloud Zechariah chapter 8 uh, verses 14 through 17. For thus says the Lord of hosts "'As I purposed to bring disaster to you "'when your fathers provoked me to wrath, "'and I did not relent,' says the Lord of hosts, "'so again have I purposed in these days "'to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. "'Fear not. "'These are the things that you shall do. "'Speak the truth to one another. "'Render in your gates judgments that are true "'and and make for peace. "'Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another.' And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Zechariah was prophesying, uh, prophesying about the future restoration of the nation of Israel, and he said that their conduct would be marked by speaking truth to one another. And then Paul, he took that prophecy from, from uh, the Israelites and, and he applied it to The church, faithful followers of God, are to speak the truth to one another uh, with the knowledge that God hates falsehood. Uh, Is this a relevant charge to the church today? I, I think that we would all agree that it probably is. Lying has been a problem from the beginning, and lying continues to be a problem even today. And all the parents said, amen. And all the wives said, amen, and all the husbands said, nope, (laughs) nope, not going to catch me in that one. Um, Yeah, natural man just lies naturally. Uh, Nobody has to teach a child how to lie. Instead, we have to teach children not to lie. Uh, just this past week uh, at conference, uh, we had some games down at Copley Noles Park and there was this young lady standing right outside the gate uh, and her parents made her stand there holding a sign and the sign said, I lie to my parents all the time. And she had to stand there and her head was down and her parents were trying to use whatever measure they could find to impart the truth that truth is important. And that lying is wrong. We have to teach our kids not to lie. And there are many reasons why this is the case, uh, why we should not lie to one another. But the reason that Paul gives us is that we are members of one another. Unity in Christ is, is one of the main themes of this letter. And I think it's safe to say that lying will do great harm to our unity. Kent Hughes says that lying will actually render the body of Christ dysfunctional. John Calvin said that lying is a monstrosity. John McKay put it like this. He said a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. There is no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. Lie. And the moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the means. Did you catch that? There, there, there is no room for the well-intentioned lie. Now, the enemy would have you believe that it's okay to tell just the small lies, and that itself is a lie straight from the pit of hell. There's no such thing as a, as a harmless lie and when you start getting comfortable telling small lies, there's nothing that's going to stop you from telling the bigger and bigger lies, and it will completely compromise your trustworthiness, your believability. This is why lying is, is so harmful, not only to us, but also to our unity. I you know I've probably spent too much time on this first point, but, but I do so because I recognize that lying is really a gateway Uh, to all of the other sins and john macarthur frequently says that if you're willing to lie there's really nothing that you're not willing to do if you're willing to look at somebody and 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 lie straight to their face you're probably willing to do far worse than that as well you've probably seen how lying has has impacted maybe your own families or or your own workplace Uh, maybe your friendships but this is not the way That we have learned christ look back to verse 21 which describes the way that we were saved we heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in jesus jesus is the truth and the truth is in jesus as followers of jesus we must be committed to speaking the truth we have to put off the old self and we've put on the new self. Therefore, we've put off that old way of falsehood that's far away from us now. And, and we're putting on this new way of, of speaking the truth, of being bound by the truth. And we do so because of the unity that we desire to preserve in the church. We don't want it to jeopardize that unity. Now, let's look down to verses 26 and 27 where we see the next old new and why. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. The wording here is it's a little bit awkward. Uh, Paul is not commanding us to be angry, um, but instead he is uh, telling us that to, we're to put off sinful type of anger. And, and the implication in putting a timeline there on our anger is that we're to have self-control over our anger, and our anger is not to have control over us. Unlike lying, uh, there actually is an anger that is good, that's okay. Now, this kind of anger is often referred to as, as a righteous indignation, right? And Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us that God feels indignation every day. Now, God in His perfection, in His perfect holiness, He looks down on, on His image bearers And he sees sin, and he feels indignation every day. God stores up wrath against sin, such as his holiness. We recently studied uh, the triumphal uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where he expressed a righteous indignation against those that were money changers and and sellers of pigeons. Out of a love for the purity of God, out of a love for the purity of worship, Jesus, in His righteous indignation, in His perfect anger, turned over tables and, and drove out those that had made the house of prayer into, into a den of robbers. In verse 26, Paul's quoting from Psalm 4 verse 4, where David was expressing that this kind of anger is okay, that it's, it's a good kind of anger, feeling anger over the murder of 20 uh, students and teachers, uh, feeling anger over the murder of of the unborn, uh, feeling anger over the persecution of of brothers and sisters around the world, Uh, this is a right kind of anger to feel, and we can feel it without sinning. But if we're being honest, uh, this most likely isn't the type of anger that we experience most often. In fact, we probably don't experience this type of anger often enough. James encouraged his readers and he said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. More often than not, our anger is grounded in pride. Uh, We feel like we deserve something, and when we don't get it, uh, we get angry about it. Uh, We get angry because our kids won't listen, right? And rather than being upset with ourselves for not training them properly in the way that they should go and and being good listeners, instead we get angry at them because they're not listening to us. Uh, We get angry at our spouse uh, because we feel like our spouse should treat us better, and rather than seeing the plank in our own eyes, uh, instead we, we nitpick and we look for faults and, and when we find them, we relish in those faults. And Frederick Buechner said that of all the sins, anger is probably the most fun. Uh, to lick your wounds, uh, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of, of bitter confrontations still to come. To a savor to the last toothsome morsel of both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, that it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that you're woofing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Isn't that true? Yeah, I think we probably all know uh, people who are just angry people. Uh, They wake up angry, Uh, they go through the day angry, they go to bed angry, they rinse and they repeat, right? But this is not the way that we learned Christ. We have to be self-controlled in our anger. We can't let our anger control us. The Word of God does not give us license to let anger dwell within us, but rather we're to give uh, a very short time to our anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So get angry, or get your anger under control, because if you don't, what's Paul say? He says that you're giving an opportunity to the devil. You're giving him a foothold into your life to have mastery over you. You're giving him a place in your life, and this cannot be for the followers of Christ. We cannot give opportunities to our enemy. I have to admit that I struggle with this one. I spent several weeks preparing. Uh, the sermon, and this was several weeks of, of daily confrontation with this particular passage, with these particular verses about being angry but not sinning in that anger, uh, of not letting the sun go down on my anger. I, I, I don't think I'm an angry man, at least I hope that's not the case, uh, but a lot of times when I get angry, uh, I can let it fester. I, I can pout uh, I can let it brew and ferment, and, uh, and I can go to bed angry and wake up the next day angry. Uh, and it really is a cancer to uh, my own soul. It's a, a cancer to my family. Uh, it's a cancer to my ministry. I can't effectively minister the Word of God when I'm resting and delighting in anger that is within me. Uh, that's hypocrisy. Paul tells us to put off the old way of sinful anger, and and to put on a new way of anger, a self-controlled anger, and that we do so in order to prevent giving the devil an inroad into our lives. We can be sure that if we give the devil an opportunity, he will take it. He will take full advantage of it. Let's look down at verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is fairly straightforward, right? Uh, It seems pretty straightforward. Put off the old old way of stealing. uh, Put on the new way of working and do this so that you would be able to share with anyone in need. The eighth commandment is a a prohibition against stealing. Thou shall not steal. The tenth commandment is a prohibition against wanting what is not yours and, and belongs to someone else. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or, or anything that is your neighbor's. From these two commandments, we can discern that, at least in Moses' time, that stealing was a problem. God saw it as big enough problem that He would carve into uh, tablets of stone prohibitions against such behavior and, and prohibitions against such desires. From Ephesians 4.28, we can discern that stealing was a problem uh, during Paul's day, Uh, at least in Ephesus it was. What about today, though? Uh, Have we as a society advanced to the point where stealing is no longer a problem? Has wokeness in our culture helped us to finally triumph over coveting and stealing? No, I don't think so. Uh, I just read an article that was published recently uh, that uh, really outlined the $8 billion of losses that department stores and chain stores experienced last year because of theft, $8 billion. They said that uh, 10% of those losses were credited to just clerical error. Uh, 30% was a result of theft, of, of uh, people stealing, uh, shoplifters coming in. And that was leaving a whopping 60% of $8 billion worth of losses that were a result of employees stealing from the company for which they worked. 60%. People steal every day. Uh, Even if they do not physically take from their employers, uh, workers still steal by showing up late, by taking extended lunch breaks, by leaving early, by camping out and updating social media, uh, by working from home and not working from home, right? we steal from the government when we cut corners, uh, when we falsely report our taxes. We steal from God when we don't give Him the glory that is due His name. Uh, When we don't give sacrificially, we're stealing from God. That's not the way that we learned Christ. Rather than stealing, as followers of Christ, we must do honest work. And notice the reason why we're to do honest work. Um, we're not told to do honest work with our own, hand, our own hands for a little while so that um, we can buy that house with a the, with the white picket fence and, and so we can accumulate as much stuff as possible and so that we can retire early to a life of leisure. No, that's not the reason that Paul gives us. We're told to work hard so that we can share with anyone in need. And remember that this was written by the same man who told the Thessalonians, if somebody is not willing to work, let them not eat. Right? Paul recognizes that um, there's, there's an importance to work and there's, uh, laziness is not to be rewarded. But just like Jesus said, we will always have the poor with us. The Christian is to be mindful of and and compassionate toward those who are in need. And we're supposed to work hard so that we can help meet some of those needs that we can share with them. And so we put off stealing and we work hard. And we do so not to pursue some so-called American dream, but so that we can share with those who are in need. Look down now to verses 29 to 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the word corrupting there means rotten or, or putrid or, or filthy. This is the talk that spreads decay to all those who hear it. It runs others down. It delights in the weakness of others. The Apostle James wrote against such speech. We heard it in the the Scripture reading earlier. When talking about the impossibility of taming the tongue, James said that the tongue is a restless evil. Uh, It's full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Our mouth has been designed to give praise to God, and with that mouth we curse those who are created in His image. We cannot have a Sunday morning mouth and then have another mouth for the rest of the week. It doesn't work as followers of Christ. That leads to hypocrisy. St. Augustine is said to have hung a motto on his dining room wall uh, which read, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. If you're going to talk smack, if you're going to talk stink about somebody who's not even here to protect themselves, uh, then you and I are not going to be breaking bread together. That's what Augustine was saying. There's no room for rotten talk in the life of the Christian. Rather than using words that tear people down, we're told only to use words that build people up. Colossians 4.6 says that our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Remember, salt was giving flavor, and it also was preserving against rot, against filth. Proverbs 12.18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Some people use words as weapons, but the wise person brings about healing with their words. Paul tells the Thessalonians to encourage one another and build one, other, one another up. This must be our daily practice as followers of Christ. The reason we're to avoid speech that tears people down is that, uh, and only use that speech that, uh, that uh, gives grace to them is because it really grieves the Holy Spirit to do otherwise. None of us who are true Christians want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, The Holy Spirit baptized us into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit sealed us as was promised in Ephesians 1.13. The Holy Spirit declares that we are God's possession. The Holy Spirit indwells us as Ezekiel had promised and as Christ affirmed Himself. The Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't even know how to pray. How could we seek to grieve the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't we be mindful of our actions having the effect of causing grief to the Holy Spirit of God? Remember that it's the Holy Spirit who is joining us together. Uh, the Holy Spirit is bringing about unity in the church. And so when, when we're using words to tear each other down, we're actually working against the Holy Spirit of God. And that causes grief to Him. So as faithful followers of Jesus, we must put off that old way of rotten talk and put on the new way of of building each other up. We do so out of a desire not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Finally, let's look at verses 31 and 32. We see that final activity. Uh, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as as God in Christ forgave you. And just like those previous activities, this one's fairly straightforward. We're we're to put off evil and we're to put on kindness. And we do so because we've been forgiven much in Christ. Let's quickly define all of these things, these evil things that Paul says we're to put away. Bitterness, uh, it's a smoldering resentment. Uh, This is the result of what happens when we don't take care of that anger, when we don't put a short leash on our anger, then bitterness starts to develop in us, and, it, and it's a smoldering fire just waiting for fuel to, to burst into flame. Wrath is rage. Uh, this points to a moment in time when there's this fury of passion. That's what wrath is. Uh, anger is, is simply just an internal hostility. Uh, clamor is that outcry of strife. Uh, this is what we try to keep quiet at church and then what we often will give full vent to when we're away from church. Slander, of course, is the speaking evil of someone. And then that word that's translated as as malice here, it's just the general Greek word for evil. It basically encompasses all of those things above, the bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander. We're to put away all of this evil. Uh, and, and we are to replace it with kindness and, and tender hardeness and forgiveness. We do, do so with the knowledge of how sinful and how ugly we are in and of ourselves. And, and yet we, by God's grace, have been extended forgiveness. If God were to be as reluctant to forgive us as we are to forgive others, uh, we would be in some hot water. I'll say that again. If, if God were as reluctant to forgive us as we are to forgive others, we would be in some serious trouble. When someone lies to us, when someone steals from us, when someone sins against us in their anger, when someone uses words to tear us down rather than to build us up, we have a choice in our response to that activity. We can take that pain which came from without uh, and we can internalize it, Uh, we can make a mental note of it, Uh, we can add to our record of wrong that we've been keeping against this person who has hurt us so many times, and we can let it stew and we can let it ferment and cause even more damage uh, within us, or we can… Extend kindness. We can be mindful of the fact that we've been forgiven much in Christ, and we can kindly and tenderheartedly extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us. We have the choice in how we respond. As we close our time in Ephesians 4, we need to be mindful of the fact that Paul is not teaching us how to become Christians here in Ephesians 4. He already did that back in Ephesians 2, right? He, he told us that um, he presented that good news that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, even so, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And in light of God's saving grace, uh, Paul is writing to those who have turned from sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And, he, and he's saying that such a belief must transform our lives. We've got to live out that faith. There has to be a difference now as we follow Jesus. When you were far off, when you were without hope, when you were without God in the world, when you had a darkened understanding and and were alienated from God, uh, your life was marked by things like lying and anger and stealing and rotten talk and just plain evil but that's not the way that we learned Christ. And since you've been saved by grace through faith, act like it. That is Paul's whole point in this passage. Act like you have been saved. Since you have put off the old self and have put on the new self, let your conduct reflect your holy attire. Speak truth. Control your anger. Work hard. Build others up. Be kind, uh, extend forgiveness. Of course, we realize that we can't do any of this apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. This is not natural behavior, this is spiritual life. And so we have to seek to walk by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit who loves us so much, whom we do not want to grieve. Now, if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins uh, and you've never truly repented, of them, no amount of effort that you put forward in trying to clean up your life is going to uh, be of any use to you in your death. Uh, You could become a person who speaks the truth most of the time. Uh, You could be a person who works really hard uh, and actually gives to the poor. You can be a person who is just really, really nice. In fact, you could become one of the nicest people who goes to hell because you have died in your sin. The Christian life, life is not simply a list of things to do and things to avoid. Uh, rather, a Christian life is the life that we live as a result of God's grace toward us. And since we are saved, since that old self has been put off, and since we've put on this new self, then we, our lives have to reflect that truth. We don't do these things in order to be saved. We do them because we are saved by God's grace. If you try to do this on your own, if you try to do this apart from Christ, this is just a bunch of death rags before a holy God. Let's close in prayer. Father, I ask that you would correct anything that I said in error this morning. If I said something that contradicts the truth of your word, I ask that You would strike it from our memory or present the truth to us immediately. Give us the ability to discern truth from error. May we always be clinging to what is true. In light of the Scripture that we have encountered today, we do ask for total transformation. Work in us so that we can daily Put off the old self and, and put on Christ. May those we interact with each day not simply see good and, and moral people, but instead may they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. May we be bold in, in showing loving kindness to others and, and in sharing the reason for the hope that we have. And may the lost who are even in our midst today truly feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and may they respond in repentance and belief. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.